Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, to you all hearts are open, every desire known, and from you no secrets are hid. We pray that you would cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we might perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and rules with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. People of God, apparently there was an Idaho sheep rancher who was approached one day by a stranger in a suit. The stranger said, if I can guess how many sheep you have, can I have one? The rancher thought it would be impossible, so he said, sure. The, ranger, the, the stranger looked out over the pasture and announced, you have 1,796 sheep. The shepherd was, so, was stunned that the, the man had gotten the right number, so he told the stranger to collect his sheep. The man selected an animal, animal, slung it over his shoulder, and started to walk away. Then the rancher called out, Hey, if I can tell you who you work for, can I have the animal back? The stranger said, Sure, thinking there was not much chance that he'd get it right. But the rancher announced with confidence, You work for the government. Well, the stranger was equally astonished. How did you figure that out? The rancher replied, well, put my dog down and I'll tell you. <laughs> it doesn't matter whether our politic is conservative or liberal. Most of us find that kind of joke pretty funny because we all tend to share a common suspicion or disrespect about, about government. Almost every culture has this kind of joke. Because by its very nature, government is an easy target. Humans can't seem to coexist without it, but we just can't seem to get it right either. At its worst, human government can be cruel, oppressive, and ugly. Even at its best, government seems cumbersome, inept, and yes, ridiculous. Author Dean Merrill, who used to work for James Dobson, suggests that we Christians need to lay off the malicious political jokes for a while. Because for too many of us, this criticism has too easily taken the place of meaningful involvement in the problems of the world. We prefer to sit on the sidelines and complain rather than just roll up our sleeves and get our hands dirty. And that seems to be one inevitable part of politics. You will get your hands dirty. Merrill's other concern about Christian cynicism regarding politics is probably even more serious. Merrill suggests that we Christians have developed an attitude about American politics that force, forces us into a defensive mode and an attitude toward culture that is decidedly unchristlike. In his book, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry Church, Merrill writes that we've perpetuated a rhetoric of anger in our pulpits across America. We argue, America used to be a Christian nation, but the liberals have taken it away from us. 
And the trouble is, when you define somebody as someone who's taken something valuable away from you, you define them as your enemy. And if that someone is your enemy, it's okay to hate them. And it becomes harder and harder to muster up the love that Jesus commands. Instead of seeing our sinful culture as people who are enslaved by the enemy, people who are in need of rescue, we've too easily come to see the culture as the enemy itself and therefore needing attack rather than love. Merrill points out from the language of several prominent American preachers, the ongoing rhetoric of anger and violence and warfare aimed at our culture. And whatever people or political groups that we consider to be our enemy, we use the strongest and sometimes most hateful language. But he suggests that rather than develop an attitude of bitterness and violence and anger toward our non-Christian culture, that we believers, we followers of Jesus Christ, have been called to a higher ethic. If you view the abortion doctor as your enemy, then then perhaps it makes sense to destroy her. If the homosexual is your enemy, then it seems reasonable to scream invectives at them. If the liberal politician or the ACLU is the enemy of our faith, then perhaps our angry language is justified. On the other hand, if instead of being our enemies, these are people who are beloved by God, creatures made in God's image, people for whom Christ died, people who desperately need to hear the message of God's love, who need to know that we respect them. If that's true, then the Christian message just might have to look different. Merrill concludes, you can't shout people into the kingdom. You don't hate people in the relationship with Christ. Romans chapter 13 is instructive here. If we think we have a conflict between Christian faith, Christian commitments, and our loyalty to the government, consider the Church of Rome in the middle of the first century. The epistle to the Romans is written to a small church community gathered in the capital city of the Western world, the political center of the Roman Empire. The the reigning emperor is Claudius Nero. Now, Nero's sexual exploits would make Bill Clinton look like the Pope. (laughs) Nero's violence and murder would rival that of Hitler and Stalin. In Rome, prostitution was rampant and legal. Pornography was commonplace. Marital infidelity and pedophilia were culturally acceptable, even respectable in some circles. Slavery was the norm, and people could be executed for refusing to submit to the state religion, worshiping the emperor and the Roman gods. The empire not only approved of abortion, but it was permissible to leave an unwanted child, a female or a deformed child, to leave it outside to be eaten by the dogs, or simply to die of exposure. With a situation, a cultural situation this dire, 
it's no wonder that the Apostle Paul deems it necessary to address the question of how a Christian should relate to politics, to the government, to society. But Paul's words are not what you and I might expect. This is not a typical preacher's harangue about what's wrong with society today. This is not an invective calling for national repentance and a return to Christian values. When Paul speaks of a Christian response to the corrupt government, first of all, he speaks to the Christian and not directly to the government. And he says simply this, we must all obey the governing authorities, for God has placed them in position. The authorities that exist have been given power by God. So those who refuse to obey the government is really rebelling, are really rebelling against God, and those who do so will bring punishment upon themselves. If this is true for Nero, then surely it is true whether Bill Clinton or George Bush is in the White House. Notice when Paul speaks of the emperor himself, when he speaks of Nero, listen to what he says. For rulers hold no, hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of, of the one in authority? Then do what is right and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment to the wrongdoer. Therefore, it's necessary to obey those in power, not merely because of possible punishment, but because of your conscience. Paul says that it's a matter of Christian conscience to obey the laws and obey the governing authorities because they've been granted the power to punish wrongdoers. The sword is a symbol of just judicial power to accomplish justice within the empire. It's truly amazing to think that Paul is thinking about Nero when he says these words, because in just under a decade, Nero will use that same sword to execute Paul as a criminal. It's necessary to point out here then that what Paul is recommending is not that Christians take an undiscriminating role toward the government, a live and let live attitude. Paul is not suggesting that we become passive about every move made by the government, that we simply withdraw into our own Christian communities, that we simply accept what comes along the way because God has placed them in power. It's clear from Scripture that governments can abuse power. They can cross the line in violating human beings, in neglecting their responsibilities. And so Paul's teaching in Romans needs to be put in the context of a larger scriptural image. And yet it creates a very difficult tension for, for the church because the fact is the early church was not known as a people who were blind acceptors of everything the political powers advocated. Christians are already in an unusual position in the first century because they confess their loyalty to Jesus as their ultimate authority. And you remember it's on the books. Jesus is by legal definition an executed traitor against Rome. This is like saying that you're a follower of Timothy McVeigh. You can be sure the FBI will be tapping your telephones. 
Jesus was executed by the power of Rome because he claimed to be an alternate king. The most basic confession of Christians, Jesus is Lord, is contradictory to the most basic confession of a Roman citizen, Caesar is Lord. Christians knew that they couldn't confess both at the same time. Either they submitted to the ultimate authority of Caesar or they submitted to the ultimate authority of Christ. There is no compromise here. Jesus was a political revolutionary. He bucked the system wherever he went. And it's said of his followers in Acts chapter 17, these people are turning the world upside down, defying the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king named Jesus. Anybody who pretends that Paul's language in Romans 12 doesn't create tension between the church and the state, between the relationship of Christians and politics, isn't taking seriously the implications of the gospel. Authentic Christianity, biblical Christianity, is forever mixing up religion and politics because Christianity is ultimately political. We're claiming the lordship of Jesus Christ and the ultimate authority of God's kingdom over every other human authority. But the mixing up of religion and politics isn't always as we assume. The biblical agenda has never been about establishing a holy Roman Empire or even about making America a Christian nation. But it has always been about our ultimate loyalty belonging to God's kingdom alone. By contrast, Christianity has never been about a salvation of a handful of a few pious individuals who withdraw from culture and ignore politics, who ignore responsibility and action, as if God was simply happy to let the world go to hell in a handbasket. In fact, there is something foundationally political about the gospel message. Jesus Christ has called his church to be an outpost of his kingdom in the world. And through evangelism, God is not merely saving individuals. He's planting communities, colonies of loyal followers all throughout the empire, all throughout the world. As citizens of God's kingdom, we're called to live in the world as if God's kingdom has already arrived. That is, we're to be a people who now are about righteousness, justice, and peace within a society that is usually about just the opposite. Paul says, yes, we should obey the authorities, not because of their inherent power or threat, but because in doing so, we are submitting to God who gives them authority. Think about it this way. If you call someone in to babysit, someone you trust, someone to babysit for your children while you go to a movie, you've temporarily invested your authority in that person. But let's say that your established bedtime for your children is 9 o'clock, and the babysitter doesn't know that. Instead, she tells the kids to go to bed at 8.30. Of course, the kids resist. But as a parent, I think you would want them to take her authority as coming from you. And if they give, in, if they give her fits you'll be angry at the kids, not the babysitter. Political authority is much like that from Paul's point of view. 
the ruling governors of the world have been established by God to both reward righteousness and punish wrongdoing. We are compelled to obey even when it seems inconvenient to do so, and sometimes even when they get it wrong. It might seem ridiculous to you that the speed limit on a certain street is 25 miles an hour, but it, it's not a violation of your Christian values to obey that law. And if you don't, Paul says, you can rightly expect to be punished. Paul doesn't want Christians to use their ultimate loyalty to God as an excuse to be anarchists. But by the same token, Paul does not expect that we will blindly obey unjust laws. If the babysitter insists that your kids go out to rob the 7-Eleven, then you can hope and expect that your children will disobey her. Some of our children, maybe not, but... <laughs> if the government, rather than just legally sanctioning abortion, actually required it, as they do in China, then you can expect that it would be a necessity for Christians to actively disobey the authorities. And this brings us finally to the question of taxes. Should a Christian pay taxes to a government that is sometimes unjust and sometimes gets it wrong? It doesn't seem from the teaching of Jesus, from his own example, or from the teaching of Paul, that the Christian needs to agree with everything that the government does in order to pay taxes. Tax paying seems to be an unpleasant but necessary aspect of communal life. I read once that the IRS received a letter saying, I cheated on my taxes this past year and I've been unable to sleep. And closed is $150. If I still have trouble sleeping, I'll send the rest later. <laughs> Paul's perspective on taxes is this. This is why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. And this echoes the teaching of Jesus. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but offer to God what rightly belongs to God. Or to put it another way, government may require taxes from you, and that's fine, but only God deserves your unflinching loyalty. This sort of, this sort of distinction can be a difficult, difficult tightrope walk. God seems to expect that we Christians will be involved in politics in one form or another, that we, that we will cooperate with the government to whatever extent we can with good conscience. But he also insists that we not confuse our allegiance. It's sometimes easy for Christians to forget that allegiance to America is not the same thing as allegiance to God. Some years back, I remember a Christian college which nearly simultaneously extended an invitation for Rush Limbaugh to speak in chapel and refused an offer for Jimmy Carter to come. The reason? Rush Limbaugh is a Republican and Carter is not. The fact that Rush Limbaugh is also vocally insistent that he is not a Christian and Carter has been a Sunday school teacher in a Baptist church for most of his adult life 
seemed irrelevant. Politics was of ultimate importance for that decision. The biblical vision of politics is not simply a knee-jerk allegiance to one party or the other. It's a complex reality to live as a Christian in the world and to face the complexities of politics. Christians who think that it's as simple as belonging to the right group are simply being naive. The last thing we need is people who are incapable of distinguishing the gospel of Jesus Christ either from left-wing political agendas or the right-wing political agenda. We Christians ought to be the most thoughtful, informed, and yes, mysterious voters on the planet. We ought, to be, uh, ought not to be a people who naively vote for the agenda of one group or who permit one issue to drive all of our political loyalties. We ought to show as much concern for the environment of God's creation as we do for the unborn, recognizing the need for clean air and water for every child that comes into the world. We ought to be at least as much committed to caring for the poor and elderly as we are committed to keeping the nation's businesses prosperous. But all of this is not driven by an ultimate commitment to the success of this or that political structure. In the end, every Christian is a political subversive. Jesus refused to endorse the nationalist political ambitions of Israel. He offered an alternative. Paul did not embrace the final supremacy of the Roman emperor. He called the church instead to live within the empire as a colony of heaven with a higher set of values and standards. America is not God's kingdom come on earth. It's one of many kingdoms that will one day be replaced by the kingdom of God. Our hope as Christians is to eventually see all kingdoms of this world give way to the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. St. John Bosco said, my politics can be summed up in the words of the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The remainder of Romans chapter 13 then is not a deviation from the main point of Paul in dealing with the Christian perspective on government and politics. In fact, it's the conclusion of the matter. As citizens of Christ's kingdom, Paul is giving us a distinctive way of living in the world, a kind of, a kind of involve, involved detachment to the way things are and a hopeful anticipation of the way things will one day be. Christians are people who stand on tiptoes, looking forward to the hope of the arrival of God's kingdom, the, the rule of God coming once again fully to God's creation. And because of this hope, we're called to live in the world now by a different standard, with different loyalties than those around us. And so we're supposed to be living in Rome with the knowledge that Rome's days are numbered. We live under the current regime, knowing that even America will be replaced by the rule of God when Christ the King returns. This is how you should live, Paul says, as people who are ruled by God. 
Pray for those who are in power. Pay your taxes. Pay all your debts, except for the debt to love one another. That's a debt you can never finish paying off, he says. Keep the commandments of God. Avoid adultery, murder, theft, coveting. Do no wrong to anyone, but love one another as you love yourself. Do this, Paul says, because you know how to tell time. You know how late it really is. Because Jesus has already come into the world to establish outposts of his kingdom. You know that he will be coming back as the conquering ruler to finish the job in the whole of creation. Therefore, your loyalties belong ultimately to that coming kingdom and not to the patterns of this age. And the day of the final arrival of Christ's kingdom, Paul says, is nearer now than when we first believed. It's nearer now than when we first started this sermon. One of the signs that the church has a different agenda from the rest of the world is our calendar. You may not be aware of it, but today is the end of the year. This is the last week of the Christian year. From the standpoint of the Christian calendar, next Sunday, the first Sunday of Advent, is the beginning of the new year. So now is a good time to make a New Year's resolution. Because of the lateness of the hour, Paul says, he recommends a threefold course of action for people who are followers of Jesus Christ. And I want to challenge you to take these three steps as a point of meditation and renewal for life in the season of Advent and the year to follow. Make these three things your New Year's resolution. First, Paul says, wake up. This is no time to be asleep. This is no time to be passive. Recognize that God's kingdom has already broken into history and ask yourself, what will it mean for me to live according to God's righteousness, God's justice, and God's peace here and now? Wake up. Second, Paul says, wash up. Cast off your dirty clothes and clean up yourself. Get rid of the self-centered patterns, patterns of life that are characteristic of the selfish age that we live in. Stop making excuses for why you're, you're living as if you're under the old regime when the new one is just about to break in. Wash up. And finally, Paul says, dress up. Clothe yourselves with the armor of right living. As those who live in the light rather than darkness, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and don't plan ways to indulge your sinful desires. As Christians, we're called to move away from this kind of selfishness, to live as if the darkness is almost over, and as if, as if the day has already dawned. We're called to participate in our world, to share in our culture, to be active in the current political system, realizing that it's on the way out and that God's kingdom is just around the corner. I remember a poster a few years ago with a picture of a tiny clapboard church surrounded on all sides by a huge X-rated theater, a munitions factory, 
and miles of steel and concrete pumping toxic fumes into the air. And the caption at the bottom of the poster said, does it feel like we're losing ground here? Often it does feel like we're losing ground, but this is no time to drop out. This is no time to opt for simplistic answers. When it seems that all is lost, we need once again a reminder of what God is doing in the world in Jesus Christ. Some time ago, I was standing in line at a bookstore, a rare experience for me. <laughs> I was purchasing a copy of Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov. And a woman behind me pointed to the thousand-page book and said, I couldn't finish that book. It was too long and too depressing. My reply to her was, oh, but you have to finish it. You have to finish the story. It only makes sense when you know the whole story. Most of us are looking around at the world, the political state of affairs, the moral decline of society, and we're increasingly frustrated. We want to give up. It's going on too long, and it's too depressing. But as Christians, we can't give up on the story of God's world because we've been promised that the darkness is almost over. The dawn is breaking. We can participate fully and responsibly in the story of this world because we, no matter, we know that no matter how long or depressing it seems, we know the end of the story. And we know that this is what makes it possible for us to live in this world with hope. The promise of Advent is this. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the extent of his government and of boundless peace, there will be no end. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.